0: Section 12 of A Life's Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Smith Nash, Tulsa, Oklahoma. A Life's Morning by George Gissing. Section 12, Chapter 8. A Sterner Wooing. It was an unusual thing for the middle of August to find Richard Dagworthy still in Dunfield. Through all the other months of the year, he stuck closely to the mill. But the best three weeks of August were his holiday. As a rule, he went to Scotland, sometimes in company with a friend, more often alone. In the previous year, he had taken a wider flight, and made his first visit to the continent, but this was not likely to be repeated for some time. He always referred to it as more or less of a feat. The expense, to begin with, was greater than he could really reconcile himself to, and the indulgence of his curiosity, not inactive, hardly compensated for his lack of ease amid the unfamiliar conditions of foreign travel. Richard represented an intermediate stage of development between the hard-headed operative who conquers wealth and his descendant who shall know what use to make of it. Therein lay the significance of the man's life. Its pathos, moreover, looking at him casually from the outside, one found small suggestion of the pathetic in his hard face and brusque manners nearer companionship revealed occasional glimpses of a mood out of harmony with the vulgar pursuits and solicitudes for which the most part seemed to absorb him one caught a hint of loneliness in his existence his reticences often very marked in the flow of his unpolished talk seemed to indicate some disappointment and a dislike to dwell upon it in point of fact his life was rather lonely his two sisters were married in other towns and since the death of his wife he had held no communications with her relatives the child was all he had of family and though his paternal affections were strong he was not the man to content his hours of leisure with gambols in a nursery his dogs were doubtless a great resource and in a measure made up to him for the lack of domestic interests yet there sometimes passed days during which he did not visit the kennels always assigned to the servants to beware of his temper, which at such seasons was easily roused to fury. The reputation he had in Dunfield for brutality of behavior dated from his prosecution for violent assault by a groom whom, in one of his fits of rage, he had all but pounded to a jelly. The incident occurred early in his married life and was, no doubt, the origin of the very prevalent belief that he had ruled his wife by similar methods. Dunfield's society was a little shy of him for some time after, until, indeed, by becoming a widower, he presented himself once more in an interesting light though he possibly brought about his wife's death by ill-usage, that did not alter the fact that he had a carriage and pair to offer to the lady whom he might be disposed to make her successor. His marriage had been of a kind that occasioned general surprise, and in certain circles indignation there had come to live in one of the smaller houses upon the heath, a family consisting of a middle-aged lady and her two daughters. Their name was Hanmer, and their previous home had been in Hebsworth, the large manufacturing town, which is sort of a metropolis to Dunfield and other smaller centres round about. Mr. Hanmer was recently dead, He had been a banker, but suffered grave losses in a period of commercial depression and left his family poorly off. Various reasons led to his widow's quitting Hebsworth. Dunfield inquirers naturally got hold of stories more or less to the disgrace of the deceased Mr. Hamner. The elder of the two daughters, Richard Dagworthy Married, after an acquaintance of something less than six months. Dunfield threw up its hands in amazement. Such a proceeding, on young Dagworthy's part, was not only shabby to the families which had upon him the claim of old-standing expectancy, but was, in itself, inexplicable. Miss Hanmer might be good-looking, but Richard always called young to distinguish him from his father had surely outgrown such very infantile reason of choice when other attractions were to the dunfield mind, altogether wanting the hanmers were not only poor but more shameful still positively stuck up in their poverty they came originally from the south of england forsooth and spoke in an affected way pronouncing their vowels absurdly well the consoling reflection was that his wife would soon make him see that she despised him for if ever there was a thorough yorkshireman it was Richard. Dunfield's comments on Mrs. Dagworthy seemed to find some justification in the turn things took. Richard distinctly began to neglect those of his old friends who smacked most of the soil. If they visited his house, his wife received them with an affected graciousness, which was so unmistakably stuck up that they were in no hurry to come again, and her behavior, when she returned visits, was felt to be so offensive that worthy ladies, already prejudiced, had a difficulty in refraining from a kind of frankness which would have brought about a crisis. The town was perpetually busy with gossip concerning the uncomfortableness of things in the house on the heath, old Mr. Dagworthy, it was declared, had roundly bidden his son seek a domicile elsewhere since joint occupancy of the home had become impossible. Whether such a change was in reality contemplated could never be determined. The old man's death removed the occasion. Mrs. Dagworthy survived him little more than half a year. So there, said Dunfield, was a mistake well done with, and it was disposed to let bygones be bygones. What was the truth of all of this? That Dagworthy married hastily, and found his wife uncongenial, and that Mrs. Dagworthy passed the last two years of her life in mourning over a fatal mistake was all that could be affirmed as fact. And probably the two persons most nearly concerned would have found it difficult to throw more light upon the situation. Outwardly, it was as commonplace a story as could be told. Even the accession of interest, which would have come of Dagworthy's cruelty, was due to the imagination of Dunfield gossips. Richard was miserable enough in his home and frequently bad-tempered, but his wife had nothing worse from him than an angry word now and then. After the first few months of their marriage, the two lived, as far as possible, separate lives. Mrs. Dagworthy spent the days with her mother and sister, Richard at the mill, and the evenings were got through with as little friction as might be between two people neither of whom could speak half a dozen words without irritating or disgusting the other. The interesting feature of the case was the unexpectedness of Dagworthy's choice. It evinced so much more originality than one looked for in such a man. It was, indeed, the outcome of ambitions which were not at all clear to the possessor. Mrs. Hanmer had impressed him as no other woman had done, simply because she had graces and accomplishments of a kind hitherto unknown to him. Richard felt that for the first time in his life he was in f- familiar intercourse with a lady. Her refined modes of speech, her little personal delicacies, her unconscious revelation of knowledge which he deemed the result of deep study, even her pretty and harmless witticisms at the expense of Dunfield dignitaries touched his slumbering imagination with singular force. Miss Hanmer, speedily observing her power, made the most of it. She was six and twenty, and poverty rendered her position desperate. Dagworthy at first amused her as a specimen of the wealthy boar, but the evident delight he found in her society "'constrained her to admit that the boar possessed the elements of good taste. "'The courtship was of rapid progress, "'the interests at stake being simply defined on either side "'and circumstances presenting no kind of obstacle. "'The lady accepted him without hesitation and triumphed in her good fortune.' Dagworthy conceived that his end was gained. In reality, it was the beginning of his disillusion. It speedily became clear to him that he did not really care for his wife, that he had been the victim of some self-deception, which was all the more exasperating because difficult to be explained. The danger of brutality on his part really lay in this first discovery of his mistake. The presence of his father in the house was a most fortunate circumstance. It necessitated self-control at a time when it was hardest to maintain. Later he was too much altered from the elementary creature he had been to stand in danger of grossly ill-using his wife. His marriage developed the man, surprisingly. It made himself conscious in a degree he could not formerly have conceived. He had fully believed that this woman was in love with him, and the belief had flattered him inexpressibly. To become aware that she regarded him with disgust, only kept under by fear, was to receive light on many things, besides the personal relations between himself and her. If he had not in reality regarded her at any time with strong feeling, what had made him so bent on gaining her for his wife? To puzzle this over, the problem would not quit his mind, was to become dimly aware of what he had hoped for and what he had missed it was not her affection. He felt that the absence of this was not the worst thing he had to bear. Gradually he came to understand that he had been deceived by artificialities which mocked the image of something for which he really longed, and that something was refinement within and without a life directed by other motives and desires than those he had known a spirit aiming at things he did not understand yet which he would gladly have had explained to him there followed resentment of the deceit that had been practised on him the woman had been merely caught by his money and it followed that she was contemptible Instead of a higher, he had wedded a lower than himself. She did not care even to exercise the slightest hypocrisy by which she might have kept his admiration. The cruelest feature of the wrong he had suffered was that, by the disclosure of her unworthiness, his wife was teaching him The real value of that which he had aimed at blindly and so deplorably failed to gain dagworthy had a period almost of despair it was then that in an access of fury he committed the brutality which created so many myths about his domestic life to be hauled into the police court and, to be well aware, what Dunfield was saying about him was not exactly an agreeable experience, but it had, like his marriage, an educational value. He knew that the thrashing administered to the groom had been a vicarious one, and this actively awakened sense of a possible inner meaning of things which was not without its influence upon him. It was remarked that he heard the imposition of his fine with a suppressed laugh. Dunfield, repeating the story with florid circumstance, of course viewed it as as an illustration of his debauched state of mind. In reality the laugh came of a perception of the solemn absurdity of the proceedings and richard was by so much the nearer to understanding himself and the world his wife's death came as an unhoped-for relief he felt like a man beginning the world anew he had no leaning to melancholy and a prolongation of his domestic troubles would not have made him less hardy in his outward bearing, but the progress of time had developed elements in his nature which were scarcely compatible with the continuance of the life he had been leading. He had begun to put to himself ominous questions, such, for instance, as, What necessity was he under, to maintain the appearance of a cheerful domesticity. If things got just a trifle more unbearable, why should he not make for himself somewhere else a new home? He was, it was true, startled at his own audacity, and only some strangely powerful concurrence of motives, such as he was yet to know could, in reality, have made him reckless, for the other features of his character, those which tended to stability, were still strong enough to oppose passions which had not found the occasion for their full development. He was not exactly avaricious, but pursuit of money was in him a hereditary instinct by mere force of habit he stuck zealously to his business and without thinking much about his wealth disliked unusual expenditure his wife had taunted him with meanness with low money-grubbing the effect had been to make him all the more tenacious of habits which might have given way before other kinds of reproof. So he had gone on living the ordinary life, to all appearances well contented, in reality troubled from time to time by a reawakening of those desires which he had understood only to have them frustrated. He groped in a dim way, after things which, by chance perceived, seemed to have a certain bearing on his life. The discovery in himself of an interest in architecture was an instance, but for his visit to the continent he might never have been led to think of the subject. Then there was his fondness for the moors and the mountains, the lochs, and islands of the north. On the whole he preferred to travel in Scotland by himself. The scenery appealed to a poetry that was in him. If only he could have brought it into consciousness. Already he had planned for the present August a tour among the Hebrides AND HAD MADE IT OUT WITH HIS MAPS AND GUIDE-BOOKS, NOT WITHOUT CAREFUL CONSIDERATION OF EXPENSE. WHY DID HE LINGER BEYOND THE DAY ON WHICH HE HAD DECIDED TO SET FORTH? FOR SEVERAL DAYS IT HAD BEEN NOTICED AT THE MILL THAT HE LACKED SOMETHING OF HIS wonted ATTENTION IN MATTERS OF BUSINESS. Certainly his occupation about eleven o'clock one morning had little apparent bearing on the concerns of his office. He was standing at the window of his private room, which was on the first floor of the mill, with a large field-glass at his eyes. The glass was focused upon the Cartwright's garden, in which sat Jessie with Emily Hood. They were but a short distance away, and Dagworthy could observe them closely. He had done so intermittently for almost an hour, and this was the second morning that he had thus amused himself. Yet, to judge from his face, when he turned away, amusement was hardly his state of mind. His features had a hard-set earnestness, an expression almost savage. And then he walked about the little room, regarding objects absently. Four days later, he was again with his glass at the window. It wanted a few minutes of ten o'clock. Emily Hood had just reached the garden. He saw her enter, and began to pace about the walks, waiting for Jessie's arrival. Dagworthy of a sudden put the glass aside, took his hat, and hastened away from the mill. He walked along the edge of the cattle market, till he came into the road by which Jessie must approach the garden. He saw her coming, and went on at a brisk pace towards her. The girl was not hurrying, though she would be late. These lessons were beginning to tax her rather too seriously. Emily was so exacting, already she had made a change in the arrangements, whereby she saved herself the walk to Banbrigg. In the garden, too, it was much easier to find excuses for trifling away time than when she was face to face with Emily at a table. She came along the road at a very moderate pace, and on seeing who it was that neared her, put on her pleasantest smile, doubly glad of the meeting. It was always something to try her devices on Richard Dagworthy, and at present, the chat would make a delay for which she could urge reasonable Excuse, "'The very person I wanted to meet,' Dagworthy exclaimed.
1: "'You
0: saved me a run all the way up to your house. "'What are you doing this way? "'Going to school?' "'He pointed to the books she carried. "'Something like it,' replied Jessie with a wry movement of her lips. "'Why did you want to meet me, though?' because I want you to do something for me, that is, if you will. But really, where were you going? Perhaps you can't spare time. I was going to the garden, she said, pointing in that direction. I have lessons there with Emily Hood. Beastly shame that I should have to do the lessons, isn't it? I feel too old for that. I've got other things to think about. She put her head on one side and rustled the pages of a French grammar, at last, throwing a glance at Richard from the corners of her eyes. But do you expect Miss Hood to come soon? Dagworthy asked, playing his part very well, in spite of a nervousness which possessed him. No doubt she's in the garden already. I've given her a key... "'so that if she gets there first... "'But what do you want me to do?' "'Well, why, I was going to ask you to walk to the station "'and meet the 1035 train from Hebsworth. "'Your father will get in by it, I expect, "'and I want him to come and see me at once at the mill.' "'All right,' Jessie exclaimed with eagerness, I'll go. Just let me run and tell Emily. Dagworthy was consulting his watch. You've only bare time to get to the station, walking as quickly as you can. Which is your garden? Let me go and tell her you're not coming. Will you? The second door round the corner there. You'll have to apologize properly. I hope you know how to. This was Jessie's maidenly playfulness. She held out her hand with many graces to take leave. "'If he doesn't come,' said Dagworthy, "'will you just walk over to the mill to let me know?' "'I don't know that I shall. I don't think it would be proper. (laughs) "'Ha, ha, I like that. "'But you'll have to be off, "'or you'll never get there in time.' She ran away rejoicing in her escape from the lesson. Of course, she tried. She ran away, rejoicing in her escape from the lesson. Of course, she looked back several times. The first glance showed her Dagworthy still gazing after her. At the second, she saw that he was walking towards the garden. He pushed open the wooden door and passed between the hedges The next door stood open, and he already saw Emily. She had seated herself under one of the pear trees and was reading. As soon as his eyes discovered her, he paused. His hands clasped themselves nervously behind him. Then he proceeded more slowly. As soon as he stepped within the garden, Emily heard his approach and turned her head with a smile, expectant of Jessie. At the sight of Dagworthy, the smile vanished instantly. She became noticeably pale and, at length, rose with a startled motion. Dagworthy drew near her. When close enough to hold out his hand, he could no longer keep his eyes upon her face. They fell and his visage showed an embarrassment which, even in her confusion, her all but dread, Emily noticed, is a strange thing. She was struggling to command herself to overcome by reason the fear which always attacked her in this man's presence. She felt it as a relief to be spared the steady gaze which on former meetings he had never removed from her you are surprised to see me here he began taking hold of the chair which emily had risen from and swaying it backwards and forwards even his voice was more subdued than she had ever known it I have come to apologize to you for sending Miss Cartwright to meet her father at the station. I met her by chance just out there in the road, and, as I wanted a messenger very badly, I took advantage of her good nature. But she wouldn't go unless I promised to come here and explain her absence. Thank you. Emily replied as naturally as she could. Will she still come back for her lesson, do you think? I'm afraid not. She said I had better ask you to excuse her this morning. Emily gathered up two or three books, which lay on the other chair. You must find her rather troublesome to teach. I should be afraid. Dagworthy pursued watching her every moment. Jessie isn't much for study, is she? Perhaps she is a little absent now and then, replied Emily, saying the first thing that occurred to her. She had collected her books and was about to fasten a strap round them. Do let me do that for you said Dagworthy, and he forestalled her assent, which she would probably not have given. By taking the books from her hands, he put up his foot on the chair, as if for the convenience of doing the strapping on his knee, but before he had finished it, he spoke again. "'You are fond of teaching, I suppose?' yes i like it she stood in expectant waiting her hands held together before her her head just bent the attitude was grace itself dagworthy raised his eyes slowly from her feet to her face but You wouldn't care to go on with it always. Uh, I, I don't think about it, she replied, nervousness again, seizing her. There was a new look in his eyes, a vehemence, a fervor, which she dared not meet after the first glance. He would not finish the strapping of the books, and she could not bid him to do so. Had she obeyed her instinct, she would have hastened away, heedless of anything but the desire to quit his presence. How long will your holidays be? He asked, letting the books fall to the chair as if by accident till the end of september i think so long i'm glad to hear that you'll come by again some day to my house with your father won't you the words trembled upon his lips it was not like his own voice he could not control it thank you mr dagworthy she replied He bent to the books again, and this time succeeded in binding them together. As he fastened the buckle, drops of perspiration fell from his forehead. Emily thanked him and held forth her hand for the books. He took it in his own. Miss Hood. She drew her hand away almost by force, and retreated a step. His face terrified her. "'I sent Jessie off on purpose,' he continued. "'I knew you were here, and wanted to speak to you alone. "'Since I met you that day on the heath, I've had no rest. "'I've wanted so to see you again.' THE OTHER MORNING AT THE rights, IT WAS ALMOST MORE THAN I COULD DO TO GO AWAY. I DON'T KNOW WHAT'S COME TO ME. I CAN'T PUT YOU OUT OF MY THOUGHTS FOR ONE MINUTE. I CAN'T GIVE MY ATTENTION TO BUSINESS, TO ANYTHING. I MEANT it TO HAVE GONE AWAY BEFORE NOW, BUT I'VE PUT IT OFF DAY AFTER DAY, ONCE OR TWICE. I've all but come to your house to ask to see you." He spoke in a hurried, breathless way. Almost with violence, passion was forcing the words from him, in spite of a shame which kept his face on fire. There was something boyish in the simplicity of his phrases he seemed to be making a confession that was compelled by fear and at length his speech lost itself in incoherence he stood with his eyes fixed on the ground perspiration covered his face mr dagworthy emily tried to break the intolerable silence her strength was answering now to the demand upon it. His utter abashment before her could not but help her to calmness, but the sound of her first word gave him voice to speak again, gave him voice again. Let me speak first, he broke forth, now looking full at her. "'That's nothing of what I wanted to say. "'It sounds as if I wasn't man enough to know my own mind. "'I know it well enough. "'And I must say all I have to say "'whilst you're here to listen to me. "'After all, you're only a girl. "'But if you'd come here straight... "'But if you'd come here straight from heaven... I couldn't find it harder to speak to you. Mr. Dagworthy, don't speak like this. Don't say more. I beg you not to. I cannot listen as you would wish me to listen. I cannot listen as you would wish me to. You can't listen, but you don't know what I have to stay still. "'But you don't know what I have to say still,' he urged with his, with hasty entreaty, his voice softer. "'I'm asking nothing yet. "'I only want you to know how you've made me feel towards you. "'No feeling will ever come to you like this that's come to me.' but I want you to know of it and to try and understand what it means to try and think of me. I don't ask for yes or no. It wouldn't be reasonable. You haven't had to think of me in this way. But God knows how I shall live without you. It will be the cruelest word woman ever said if you refused, even, to give me a hope. I cannot, do hear me. It is not in my power to give you hope. Oh, you say that, because you think you must, because I have come to you so suddenly. I have offended you by talking in this way, WHEN WE SCARCELY KNOW EACH OTHER EVEN AS FRIENDS, AND YOU HAVE TO KEEP ME AT A DISTANCE. I SEE IT ON YOUR FACE. DO YOU THINK THERE IS A DANGER THAT I SHALL BE LESS RESPECTFUL TO YOU THAN I OUGHT? THAT'S BECAUSE YOU DON'T UNDERSTAND ME. I'VE SPOKEN IN ROUGH, HASTY WORDS, BECAUSE TO BE NEAR YOU TAKES ALL SENSE FOR ME. Look, I'm quieter now. What I ought to have said at first is this. You're prejudiced against me. You've heard all sorts of tales. I know well enough what people say about me. Well, I want you to know me better. We'll leave all other feelings aside. We'll say I... Just wish you to think of me in a just way, a friendly way, nothing more. It's impossible for you to do more than that at first. No doubt even your father has told you that I have a nasty, a hasty temper, which leads me to say and do things I'm soon sorry for. It's true enough, but that doesn't prove that I am a brute and that I can't mend myself. You've heard things laid to my charge that are false about my doings in my own home. You know what I mean. Get to know me better, and some day I'll tell you the whole truth. Now, it's only this I ask of you. Be just to me. You're not a woman like these in Dunfield who talk and talk behind one's back. Though I have seen so little of you, don't I know the difference between you and them? I'm ignorant enough compared with you, but I can feel What it is that puts you above all other women. It must be that that makes me mad to gain a kind word from you, one word that you'll try to think of me, and I'll live on, and I'll live on that as long as I can. The mere utterances help little to an understanding of the terrible force of entreaty he put into this speech his face his hands the posture of his body all joined in pleading he had cast off all shamefacedness and spoke as if his life depended on the answer she would return the very lack of refinement in his tone in his pronunciation of certain words, made his appeal the more pathetic. With the quickness of jealousy, he had guessed at the meaning that there might lie in Emily's reluctance to hear him, but he dared not entertain the thought. It was his passionate instinct to plead it down. Whatever it might be, that she had in mind she must first hear him as he spoke he watched her features with the eagerness of desire a fear to do so was but to inflame his passion it was an extraordinary struggle between the force of violent appetite and the constraint of love in the higher sense how the former had been excited. It would be hard to explain. Wilfred Athel had submitted to the same influence. Her beauty was of the kind which, leaving the ordinary man untouched, addressed itself with the strangest potency to an especially vehement nature here. And there, her mind, uttering itself in the simplest phrases, laid a spell upon certain other minds set apart and chosen. She could not speak, but the soul of this rude mill-owner was exalted beyond his own intelligence. She could not speak. But the soul of this rude mill-owner was exalted beyond his own intelligence. Forced to wait the end of his speech, Emily stood with her head bowed in sadness. Fear had passed. She recognized the heart-breaking sincerity of his words and compassionated him. When he became silent, she could not readily reply. He was speaking again below his breath. What? You are thinking. I know how you can't help regarding me. Try only to feel for me. There is only one way in which I can answer you she said i owe it to you to hide nothing i feel deeply the sincerity of all that you have said and be sure mr dagworthy that i will never think of you unjustly or unkindly but i can promise nothing more i have already given my love Her voice faltered before the last word, the word she would never lightly utter, but it must be spoken now. No paraphrase would confirm her earnestness sufficiently. Still keeping her eyes on the ground, she knew that he had started. "'You have promised to marry someone.' He asked as if it were necessary to have the fact affirmed in the plainest words before he could accept it. She hoped that silence might be her answer. Have you? Do you mean that? I have. She saw that he was turning away from her, and with an effort she looked at him. She wished she had not. His anguish expressed itself like an evil passion. His teeth were set with cruel savageness. It was worse when he caught her look and tried to smile. Then I suppose that's that's the end he said, as if he would make an effort to joke upon it, though his voice all but failed in speaking the few words. He walked a little apart, then approached her again. You don't say this just to put me off, he asked, with a roughness which was rather the effect of his attempt to keep Down emotion rather than intentional. I have told you the truth, Emily replied firmly. Do other people know it? Do the Cartwrights? You are the only one to whom I have spoken of it. Except your father and mother, you mean? They do not know. Though so troubled, she was yet able to ask herself whether his delicacy was sufficiently developed to enjoin silence. The man had made such strange revelation of himself, she felt unable to predict his course. No refinement in him would now have re- surprised her, but neither with any outbreak of boorishness he seemed capable of both his next question augured ill of course it is not anyone in dunfield it is not jealousy was torturing him he was quite conscious that he should have refrained from a single question yet He could no more keep these back than he could the utterance of his passion. Will you? He hesitated. May I leave you, Mr. Dagworthy? Emily asked, seeing that he was not likely to quit her. She moved to take the books from the chair. One minute more. Will you tell me who it is? I am a brute to ask you, but... If you, good God, how shall I bear this? He turned his back upon her. She saw him quiver. It was her impulse to walk from the garden, but she feared to pass him. He faced her again. Yes, the man could suffer. Will you tell me who it is? He groaned rather than spoke. You don't believe that I should speak of it? "'but I feel I could bear it better. "'I should know for certain. "'It was no use hoping.' "'Emily could not answer. "'Is it someone in London?' "'Yes, Mr. Dagworthy. "'I cannot tell you more than that. "'Please do not ask more.' "'I won't.' Of course your opinion of me is worse than ever, that doesn't matter much. If you could kill as easily as you can drive a man mad, I would ask you to still have pity on me. I'm forgetting. You want me to go first, so that you can lock up the garden. Goodbye he did not offer his hand but cast one look at her a look emily never forgot and walked quickly away emily could not start at once homewards when it was certain that dagworthy had left the garden she seated herself she had need of rest and of solitude to calm her thoughts her sensation was that of having escaped a danger the dread of which thrilled in her The fear had been allayed for an interval it regained its hold upon her towards the end of the dialogue the passion she had witnessed was so rude so undisciplined it seemed to expose elementary forces which if need be was set every constraint at defiance. It was no exaggeration to say that she did not feel safe in the man's presence. The possibility of such a feeling had made itself known to her even during the visit to his house. To find herself suddenly the object of his almost frenzied desire was to realize how justly her instinct had spoken. This was not love as she understood it, but a terrible possession which might find assuagement in the inflicting of some fearful harm upon what it affected to hold dear. The love of Emily's worship was a spirit of passionate benignity, of ecstatic calm, Holy in renunciations, pure, unutterably, in supreme attainment. Her knowledge of life was insufficient to allow her to deal justly with love as exhibited in Dagworthy. Its gross side was too offensively prominent. Her experience gave her no power of rightly appreciating the struggle of the divine flame in a dense element. Living, and having ever lived, amid idealisms, she was too subjective in her interpretation of phenomena so new to her. It would have been easier for her to judge impartially had she witnessed this passion directed towards another. Addressed to her in the position she occupied, any phase of wooing would have been painful. Behemence was nothing less than abhorrent, wholly ignorant of Dagworthy's inner life. She misled with regard to the mere facts of his outward behavior. It was impossible that she should discern the most deeply significant features of the love he expressed so ill. Impossible for her to understand that what would be brutality in another man, was in him the working of the very means of grace? Could circumstances have favored their action? One tribute her instinct paid to the good, which hid itself under so rude a guise as she pondered over her fear, analyzing it as scrupulously as she always did those feelings which she felt it behoved her to understand once for all, she half discovered in it an element which only severe self-judgment would allow. It seemed to her that the fear was, in an infinitesimal degree, of herself that Under other conditions, she might have known what it was to respond to the love thus offered her, for she neither scorned nor loathed the man, notwithstanding her abhorrence of his passion as devoted to herself. She wished him well. She even found herself thinking over those women in Dunfield, whom she knew, if perchance one of them might seem fitted to make his happiness. Nonetheless, it was terrible to reflect that she must live, perhaps for a long time, so near to him ever exposed to the risk of chance meetings, if not to the danger of a surprise such as today's, for she could not assure herself that he would hold her answer final. One precaution she must certainly take. Henceforth, she would never come to the garden save in Jessie's company. She wondered how Dagworthy had known of her presence here, and it occurred to her to doubt of Jessie. Could the latter have aided in bringing about this interview Dagworthy, confessing his own maneuver, would naturally conceal any conscious part in it that Jessie might have taken. Her spirits suffered depression as she communed thus with herself. All the dreary -er aspects of her present life were emphasized. She longed, longed with aching of the heart for the day which should set her free forever from these fears and sorrows another secret would henceforth trouble her would that it might remain a secret if jessie indeed knew of this morning's events there was small likelihood that it would remain unknown to others then the whole truth must be revealed would it not be better to anticipate any such discovery to tell her father this very day what had happened and why it was so painful to her? Yet, to speak of Dagworthy, might make her father uneasy in his position at the mill, would inevitably do so. Therein lay a new dread. Was Dagworthy capable of taking revenge upon her father? Oh, surely, surely not! The words passed her lips involuntarily. She would not, she could not believe so ill of him had he not implored her to do him justice. When Mr. Hood returned from business on the following day, he brought news that Dagworthy had at last gone for his holiday. It was time, he said, dagworthy was not looking himself at the mill they had been in mortal fear of one of his outbreaks did he speak harshly to you father emily was driven to ask with a very slight emphasis on the you fortunately was the reply with the sad abortive laugh which was mr hood's nearest approach to mirth fortunately he left me alone and spoke neither well nor ill. He didn't look angry, I thought, so much as put out about something. Emily was relieved from one fear at least, and felt grateful to Dagworthy. Moreover, by observation, she had concluded that Jessie could not possibly be aware of what had taken place in the garden, and now Dagworthy was likely to be away for three weeks. Her heart was lighter again. End of Section 12, Chapter 8 Recording by Susan Smith Nash, Tulsa, Oklahoma